Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Liz Kelly. With the NFL season a week away and the Ringer's fantasy football coverage gearing up, we have released our first ever Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. We assembled a panel of voters, including Bill Simmons, Cousin Sal, Robert Mays, Mallory Rupin, and more, to induct the 25 best fantasy football players of all time. You can find the rankings by going directly to fantasyfootball.theringer.com. And for more fantasy football coverage, check out the Fantasy Football Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Jam Session. I'm Juliette Littman. I'm Amanda Dobbins. It's the dog days of summer. Remember when the VMAs used to be after Labor Day, Amanda? I mean, I don't remember that. I don't think my life was that organized where I was, you know, going by national holidays in my 20s. But I do, I guess I remember, I remember the VMAs. I remember more people paying attention to them. They're back in our lives more so than ever. And that's because we we both watched last night's show. How much of the show did you watch? Uh, I'll be honest. It it was at the same time as uh, Serena Williams playing Maria Sharapova Mm -hmm. and then Roger Federer playing in the first round of the U.S. Open. So I watched on YouTube after the fact. Thank you to MTV for putting all of the clips on a very easy to watch YouTube after years of the finally figured it out. After years of the MTV video player, I really appreciated it. Uh, yeah, I watched Serena beat uh, Maria, and I also just want to shout out Alexis Ohanian, who wore a, a Dare t-shirt to watch his oh wife beat the the cheater. Great stuff. Uh, Love it. Did you watch live? I did. Uh, no, that's not true. I started like 70 minutes late, so I could fast forward through a lot of it. Okay, but you were at least experience it, like, experiencing it in context. Yes, I did watch Taylor Swift specifically live. I was at eight o'clock. I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this. So she performed. We'll discuss that in one second. But did you happen to catch the host at all? No, I saw a couple of like clips on the internet and a summary of some of the jokes. And, you know, I don't like good stand-up comedy for the most part. So I didn't really feel the need to seek it out further. I fast forwarded or tuned it out as much as possible. But I just want to say I had never heard of Sebastian Maniscalco before. This person is brand new to me. This is the first time he has entered my mind. I, I have no idea who this person is. I can't believe he's hosting the VMAs. He's also, like, older than both of us, and, like, we are fairly washed as it comes to the VMAs. Yes. So I'm just like, what's going on here? I don't get it. But whatever. No one asked me, as per usual. I have not found a convincing explanation as to why they chose this person who I believe is a very successful comedian, but not in the VMA's demographic and not in your and my demographic. That's fine. You know, there are many different ways to find an audience in 2019. Yeah. But why he was hosting the VMA's, it's not like the VMA's were in Newark, New Jersey last night. They were held at the Prudential Center. And it's not like he was from New Jersey and being like the hometown comedian. It's not like he, I'm not aware of an intense teen following that he has. Kaya, do the young millennials... Are, are they a fan of this person? I've never heard of him okay, before great. in my life. All right. I just wanted to make sure. Old and young, slightly confused. And it didn't seem like it went well, Juliet. Is that correct? I don't think it did. But I, honestly, I don't know. I fast forward as much as possible and like paid as little attention to him as possible mm-hmm. as well. Whatever. Just a really weird choice. I think the whole New Jersey situation at being at the Prudential Center and then the Jonas Brothers performing in Asbury Park, which was very clearly pre-recorded, I think probably on a different day because then they ended up 
at the awards and they were performing at dusk. It must have been a day early. Anyway, must have just been a money saver. I mean, I can't imagine how much cheaper it is to do it there versus Radio City Music Hall or anywhere else in, in Manhattan. So, you know, I was impressed, actually, at how many people they had that are culturally relevant right now. Like, they had people that matter. I think they had more people that matter in, than in recent years, which is maybe one of the reasons why I watched it all. Do you mean in terms of performers or the audience? Both, but really performers. Although, like, notably, they did not have Ariana Grande. Yeah, and she won Artist of the Year and was not present. Is that correct? Correct, yes. And, like, I didn't even know she won Artist of the Year because if you weren't there, they just moved on very quickly. Yeah, I mean, the VMAs are interesting, right? Because they both define who matters and are also— there are a lot of people who are going there because they're not Ariana Grande and they don't have a total stranglehold— over pop culture as she does. And so they need the promotion. And even Taylor Swift, who we've talked about at great length, is a giant kind of unassailable pop star at this point. She has an album to promote. So she's there. Everyone was there because they kind of need something. So the VMAs still have a utility, even though they feel kind of less, fewer things happen. That like of of note at the VMAs than they did say ten or fifteen years ago. Is that fair? Oh, definitely. They're not like zeitgeist defining. They're zeitgeist reactive. Like they like are like they're like oh people care about Camila Cabello and Shawn Mendes. Let's have them do like a couples performance. You know, like they right. don't set the agenda. They respond to the agenda. Yeah, and let's write the article about their performance four days before and accidentally publish it on EntertainmentTonight.com, which is a thing that happened. Is that right? <laughs> Yes, it yeah. did. So okay. incredible. But yeah, I, I mean, you think of VMA's past. Obviously, I'm going to let you finish, which was 10 years ago. There is the, you know, the Miley twerking incident, which for better and honestly a lot for worse, just kind of set the discourse uh, ablaze for months, if that's fair to months. say. Yeah. I, Brittany with a snake is at the VMA's. Isn't that right? Yes, it was. And also, like, Britney's kind of tough comeback, circa Give Me More. Was that the VMAs? Yes, it was. That was in, like, 2008, I think. Yeah, that sounds Se- right. Seven. Maybe seven. No, it was seven. I was still in college. They also had little Kim with her boob hanging out, which was, like, All a right. thing. Diana Ross touching it. That Is, was that great was, stuff. That's 1999, right? It was. That's, it was so, $9,999. There, we did a Ringer Dish podcast about that VMAs. I mean, I, you and I didn't, but I believe Andrew Grotadero and friends did a, a version of it that you can listen to as well. There weren't any events like that last night, as best I could tell. No, definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, the biggest thing that happened was that Taylor Swift opened the show, and she did a medley of You Need to Calm Down and Lover. Yeah. And Lover was good, if not great. And You Need to Calm Down was horrible with appalling choreography. <laughs> I would say that You Need to Calm Down was like a real disaster and was pretty clarifying to me after watching just that segment and then watching all the performers of... Taylor Swift has never been, a first and foremost, a stage performer. She's not a dancer. She has other skills. But she's also never had that can fill an arena with her presence type of, or with her dancing, with like the choreography and the big stage sets that say a Beyonce or a Lizzo, as we'll talk about, can do. 
And th- I mean, that's that's not to take away from her. She really just has other abilities. I have seen Taylor Swift at the Prudential Center. I saw her perform all too well twice at the Prudential Center because I went to Newark twice to see Taylor Swift. And when she's sitting at a piano singing that song, she fills the stadium, but like wearing sparkles and doing whatever weird stuff they asked her to do. It's just not a look. And I I thought it was like particularly bad to the point that it seemed like the sound was off. I thought a lot about how the, I mean, the mixing was definitely off, but the super produced songs on her album just do not lend themselves to performance at all. Yeah. And then obviously it was such a comparison with Lover, which is her and a guitar and what she should be doing. Yeah, and that was like really li- really nice. And also the crowd obviously liked that a lot more. I mean, thanks to Gigi Hadid for holding her champagne high and swaying back and forth. She looked so beautiful. She, I don't know if you caught that. Uh, she she did gorgeous. really look beautiful. I also noticed that she knew all the words. Yeah, she did. They're really good friends. They cut to Gigi and Bella and Lot, and I was really impressed with... I, I, Bella seemed to know all the words to Panini by Lil Nas X, and I was just like, well, I'm I'm ancient. Put me on the glacier. But also respect to Bella Hadid, who knows all the words. So Those two sisters seem like fun. They just seem like a great time. Yeah, I agree. And the reaction shots were, like, people having a nice time for the most part, I guess. Even the VMA's reaction cam, like, eight years ago used to be, or maybe even five years ago, used to be the real secret because they would just keep one trained on Rihanna when Rihanna still went to these. And it was just Rihanna being like, I don't know what's happening. And even last night, it seemed like the reactions were polite. The best reactions, as they have been for the last 18 months, came from Sophie Turner. Boy, does Sophie Turner love Lizzo, which was just awesome. (laughs) Like, she was having such a fun time during that performance. Who doesn't love Lizzo? I don't know. But I will say last night was like a real—I think Lizzo is delightful and talented and, like, definitely has real presence. Before we were recording, we were talking— And Kaya brought up her Tiny Desk concert, which is just, like, really joyful. But last night was pretty star-making for me. Just because that is a big stage where, as we said, a lot of giant things have happened. And there are pop stars like Taylor Swift who just cannot fill that space. And Lizzo just looked so comfortable and natural and at home on that giant stage. I was really impressed. Yeah, I mean— Great stuff. I saw her open for Haim last summer or like 18 months ago at this point. And she was great. She's just a really good performer. Some people are just natural or born meant to be on stage. And it seems like she's one of them. Yeah, I agree. That was the big standout for me last night. Everything else was, oh, and I mean, obviously also Missy, you know. Yeah, that I, was awesome. But that's, it's Missy. So great to have Allison Stoner back in the mix. For those of us who love Step Up to the Streets, it was great to see her. Yeah. Anything <laughs> else of note? Do you want to talk about Taylor's acceptance speech? No. Okay. I don't. Do you? Not really. I think it could have been worse. I think it also could have been sooner. She called out the president. She's advocating for the you know uh, Marriage Equality Act. And I think most notably... She has replaced the squad of 1989 era publicly with people for whom she wants to advocate and uh, and is now friends with. And that's, like, an interesting shift. And then, meanwhile, like, all the stories in Page Six and E! News are 
that she was partying with her good friends. Nothing wrong with it. Gigi Hadid late into the night. So it just seems like some of this that she's doing is like for a public front. And then she's keeping her private actual relationships private. But it just comes off a little insincere. Yeah. And I think using a platform to advance issues that you and I entirely agree with. It's not Taylor Swift's message that I have a problem with, but no, there is something about, especially after the the years of hand-wringing over her inability to speak out publicly, even as, like, white nationalists embraced her, and then to be coming so late to this support. And it, I, I'm just kind of like, okay, I, you know, I agree with you, but it does feel, it feels calculated. It can't help but yeah. feel calculated. And maybe yeah. all things like this should be calculated, but it does, from her, take away a little bit from the power, I think. Anyway. I agree. Let's go from Taylor Swift to a rumored ex-boyfriend of Taylor Swift. Yeah. Let's leave her behind. Check out Monday's Ringer Dish if you want some more lover talk. We went Wait, deep for, I'm sorry, for an hour. I, I'm sorry. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. Following up on Monday's Ringer Dish, and it is also about Taylor Swift. So I took a hard stand that I don't believe that Taylor Swift ever lived on Cornelia Street, even though mm-hmm. she rented a place on Cornelia Street. That's fine. I don't believe it. But someone sent us the listing on Twitter. Do you realize that we have literally talked about that rental on this podcast before? No, I haven't. I, Someone sent it to us? Yes. And, but we talked about it because there's like a pool in the basement and it's a really narrow pool. And as soon oh. as I saw the pool, I was like, oh, that place. Yeah, we have talked about that. I, awesome. I still don't believe she lived there, but shout out to us for being on our real estate shit. Okay. Oh my God. Moving Incredible. on. So good. Ugh, love real estate. Anyone wants to talk to me about it, super available. Moving on to Rolling Stones cover boy, Harry Styles. Very in-depth profile from Rob Sheffield about Harry Styles and what he's been up to. And um, it sort of sets sets the stage for a Harry Styles album coming either later this year or early 2020. Jesus Christ. And um, it really paints a picture of Harry as a young adult versus a boy band star. And I think like we knew he was getting there. He obviously did that with his first album, which was very good. But this was just really, this was a tour de force celebrity profile. Amanda, why was it so good? I mean, Harry Styles might be among the top five most charming people alive. It is really, really charming and full of charisma. And I give credit to Rob Sheffield who wrote this for being able to portray Harry Styles in that way. I do think Harry Styles, personality-wise, has been a bit elusive, certainly to journalists and sometimes to the average person. He can be a bit spacey, perhaps, but he just seems locked in and thoughtful and cool and just adorable and someone you want to be around in this. It really worked for me. I'm a grown woman, and it really works for me. I had a big One Direction face in like 20, let's see, I moved to LA in 2012. So it was like 2012, 2013. I had a big 1D face. Plus, it was 2012 because I had gone to Ireland in 2011. They were all over the radio. And I watched tons and tons and tons of interviews with a teenage Harry Styles who had dated Caroline Flack, though he was under 18 and she was a famous television presenter at the time and still is. And he always approached the interviews where it was like him and one of his bandmates, like just two of them, with this like his incredibly charming smile 
where he indicates that he really knows what's going on and he's just fucking with whoever's interviewing him. Mm -hmm. Like, he's honest, but only kind of. Everything is said with, like, a knowing smile. And he just, like, he's built for this, you know? Like, there's just no other way to put it. And even from a really young age, as he said in the article, like, he liked being in One Direction. If it wasn't fun, he wouldn't have done it. And you could really, you could just really tell that from him all the time and such a and it was so obviously conveyed that it's almost like he didn't really need the press. He didn't really need to do uh this is who I am or this is who I want to be kind of profile. But that was always my read on him anyway. I think that makes a lot of sense and I think what's interesting about this piece is obviously a bit older. He has also obviously trying to sell an album, but he still has that quality of I want to be here. I like doing this. I'm very comfortable where I am, but Slightly more open, not too yeah. open. Even the things where he's like talking about inclusivity and feminism and all of these ideals that he's made a central part of his shows and his his existence. He's just kind of like, I don't want credit for this. This is just how it is. It's important for it to be recognized, but it's not about me. Let's talk about something else. I really just have to read this quote that's about three-fourths of the way down. To me, the greatest thing about the tour was that the room became the show. It's not just me. I'm just a boy standing in front of a room asking them to bear with him, which is 100% a Notting Hill reference. So 100%. Thank you. I don't even know if anyone else, how many people get that, but I got that and I felt seen and really moved by it. And, you know, I, I he just, I read this and I was like, wow, if I were 25, there's no one that I would want to be with more in life than Harry Styles. He's thoughtful and still cool and... The photos also are delightful. He's having so much fun. You yeah. know, that's the other thing. As you said, he he likes doing it. He's having fun, and you can tell, and that's so appealing. One thing I also appreciate about the way he discusses sexuality and sex and gender is that he is resistant to using labels, and not in a way where he's like, I'm not going to label this, or like, I don't want to say this, but he just doesn't say it. Like, he's supportive of what he's supportive of, and he doesn't get that specific. And maybe that's because he's, he's trying to be evasive or elusive. But I actually really appreciated it because I do find that in some discourse of inclusivity, which, again, obviously we support, there's so many labels and things like so often have to be defined. And I'm a huge, huge problem in, in this situation because I'm always, like, looking to define things. So that's, like, you know, just sort of my MO. And I feel like Harry, one thing I really appreciated about this was, like, the way he talked about the fluidity of gender is he didn't even say the fluidity of gender. He kind of like implied it with, with what else he was saying. And I really appreciated that. He just seems, he seems resistant to labels and that's like natural for him. It's kind of cool. He seems very at peace generally yes. with himself, with maybe the Maybe it's world. all the drugs he's doing. Maybe. Maybe it's the margaritas at 10 in the morning, which I appreciated. You know, we're a part of the piece, but it's not like he brought them up to be like, isn't it awesome that we had, you know, we're doing all these drugs and doing margaritas at 10 in the morning. He just kind of is where he is and everyone comes to him. I've got cues about his finances because while I'm sure they made a nice penny off off of uh, 1D, they didn't make like being being a young teenager in a boy band is not the same as like being Taylor Swift or Adele or Beyonce or Jay-Z or or Justin Bieber. Like you don't get the money in the same way. And Harry Styles is evidently just super rich. And I've got questions about how. I just want to know. Can I, we get can we get some a finance report? I have to assume that a ton of it is Gucci money, right? Yeah. It's gotta be like modeling, endorsements, appearances, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. Which um, good for him. He looks great in all of the Gucci yeah. clothes. He can he really, really he, he can wear clothes. 
You really can. All right, let's move on. But first, let's talk about today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around. I'm excited about Luminary because it's the only place you can listen to two of our shows from The Ringer. One is Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock 1999. It's a podcast you can't miss. In 1999, a music festival took place in upstate New York that became a social experiment. There were riots, looting, and numerous assaults. And it was set to a soundtrack of the era's most aggressive rock bands. Incredibly, it was a third iteration of Woodstock, a festival known for peace, love, and hippie idealism. But Woodstock 99 revealed some hard truths about the myths of the 1960s and the danger that nostalgia can engender. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators that you can't find anywhere else. That includes The Rewatchables 1999. It's the sister show of The Rewatchables, and we cover movies from 1999. Amanda and I did Notting Hill for this, so check it out. The Luminary app is free to download. In addition to the Can't Miss Originals, you can listen to all of your favorite podcasts, including this one. Whether you're into music, TV, or film, comedy, sports, whatever, Luminary has the right show for you. So check out Break Stuff and Rewatchables 99 and so much more. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash jam. After that, it's only $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash jam for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash jam. Cancel anytime and terms apply. Okie dokie. We can't get through a podcast without some Megan Watch. And this week we, we actually about- did. We, d- we didn't do it last week. We I ignored this issue. I didn't bring it up, but it continues to percolate. So Megan's still getting a raw deals, but that's how I want to couch it. But if we're being more honest, Harry and Megan took two trips to like the southern Mediterranean part of Europe, which is a wonderful place to be in the summer. One to Ibiza and one to the south of France. And in both cases, they took private planes. And people are super mad about this. Really, really mad. And I think you got to keep in mind it's August and the, the UK press. Like, they take August way more seriously in the UK even than they do in the US. Like, people don't work. There's nothing happening. So this is a real—this is happening in a vacuum of, no, there's nothing else to talk about. And also, the UK press is really mean and often— Racist. So, and also, by talking about this scandal, they are not talking about some other scandals. And there's many they could be talking about. One came up. One that came up today is that the official split of the Sussexes and the Cambridges is official in like the language of their charity. But moreover, Prince Andrew is a noted person who has ties to Jeffrey Epstein and is being being accused accused nothing proven of having a relationship or having sex with someone who could have been underage. So there's like a way bigger scandal going on that maybe people don't want to touch. And so it's like, maybe they're writing about this one. I don't know. Yeah. I would say also they have definitely been covering the Prince Andrew Epstein thing. And it's... It's leading the Daily Mail today. Right. And it's been leading it, you know, for several weeks now. But I think also in the same way that you and I just like don't really want to talk about that because it's just like depressing and... Um, and and no one knows the actual details. Like, there's not a lot to be said because it's all, like, so sealed. Right. But people, I'm sure, want to read about criticizing Meghan Markle for a private plane just because the stakes are so much lower, right? So, so much lower. it's an outlet for people, which seems like a lot of what's happening here is that it's an outlet for a lot of issues. 
Yes, so they took some private planes and everyone is furious. And then celebrities like Elton John and I believe Ellen DeGeneres came to their defense. And let me just say, when Ellen DeGeneres is coming to your defense about celebrity privilege, you know you're in trouble. You, that's yeah. like you, that's the wrong side. You don't want to be on that one. And then the, the columns have just kept coming of people being like, well, we paid for their renovations, so they should... They owe us things in return, which I guess, I don't know. Is that true? Probably. Is one private jet ride going to be the breaking point? I don't know. It's weird that this has become the breaking point, but it has. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't really know how to explain it. I guess like part of it also is it's just very public and uh, also it looks bad after Camp Google and like it was, he was like talking about climate change. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I'm less of a Megan defender than I used to be, but like also like, why do you want to be mad at Megan Marco all the time? Well, I think because people have nothing better to do. And I think yeah. that there is, there are a lot of assumptions and d- discrimination embedded in it. While you were gone, Kaya and I had a conversation about Megan Markle editing British Vogue. Hmm. And I, you know, I actually thought her contributions and particularly her writing in British Vogue were really thoughtful and good. I think she's a great writer. She was obviously a blogger for a long time. But that conversation— Should we hire? Should we try yeah, to hire her? Maybe, maybe it would go better for her. But that conversation ended up just being about bad PR and how they're just not presenting what they're doing correctly because it's fine for her to guest edit British Vogue. Kate Middleton has been on the cover of British Vogue. Princess Diana was on the cover of British Vogue. And she wasn't even on the cover. She was doing work and kind of lifting up issues that are important to her and other women. But there is just something about how they— they're not communicating their intentions and their priorities, and they're only communicating kind of elitist interests, like, you know, doing Vogue, which is sort of a, a fancy for rich people publication, and taking private jets and being like, please don't talk to us about who are you know, the godparents of our children are, like, our lives are not open to you. And because they're making such a definitive stand, they're opening themselves up to more criticism. Does that make yeah. any sense? Yeah, it does. I think just by nature of them being so public and, like, sort of, like, making their own choices that deviate from the royal script, it just opens themselves up to so much more because they are being deli- they're clearly deliberate in the choices they make. And so there's a lot more room to criticize them. Yeah. And it just seems like they're making those choices and not thinking about how they'll be received or maybe don't care how they'll be received, which, you know, it's part of the game when you're in the royal family. It's yeah. it's just kind of your life, literally your job. And the reason that you are getting the $3 million to renovate your house is because certain aspects of your life are public property. And that is weird. And maybe the Monarchy shouldn't exist anymore, but that's kind of the—that's the arrangement as it exists, and I don't think that you can totally ignore it. Or you can, but then people are going to come at you for really small, petty things, which is, I think, what the private jet thing is about. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Good luck I agree. to them. Good luck, as we like to say here. <laughs> Jam session, Colin. Good luck. <laughs> um, next. Amanda, let's take a brief— detour into some place we don't tend to wait on this podcast. Television! We love television. Well, yeah, you love television. I like certain shows. You are a true television enthusiast. You know, I, I really am. I've I've had a television in my bedroom since I was eight years old, and I just, 
I love TV. I just, it's a wonder, it's always been my format. I've been thinking a lot about ER these days, mm-hmm. as I often do, but like even more so. And I just love TV. So you like TV. You watch some TV. I like the shows that I like a lot. Yeah. And then the other stuff sometimes feels like homework to me. Can I tell you what I did this morning? Please. I was waiting for the bus, but I was still home, but I was like, okay, I'm going to take the bus. It's coming at like X time. I had a few minutes to spare. I was at my parents, so I didn't really have like my own DVR to call from, and I was in a room without a streaming device, so I was like, what's on cable right now? And then I watched 15 minutes of an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in which Chris Rock was a guest star. Amazing. I miss sitcoms. That's like, but like really low stakes, dumb ones. And also Will Smith is just an incredible entertainer who is charming and handsome 100% of the time. Preach. I 100% agree with you. I don't feel that other people in the Ringer universe appreciate Will Smith as much as you and I do, including Chris Ryan. I love Ryan. him. Chris Ryan has still never listened to all of the song Miami. Whatever. What? Literally. Did you miss this? Yeah, you missed this. Chris has never listened to the song Miami in his entire life. We did a whole package about 1999 music that Juliet worked very hard on. And a lot of people did a lot of great work for. And in the meeting where we were deciding the list, Chris was like, I don't know what Miami is. And then I played him half of Miami. And then he's like, I've never heard this before. And we, I didn't play the whole song because we were in a meeting and he's never heard the rest of it. Oh my God. Crazy. I agree. I agree. Anyway. I think Chris and Sean had this conversation on The Watch about the movie Hancock. And mm-hmm. I love that movie. Like, and like they didn't like it enough. Like they were like, oh yeah, okay, good movie. But like I love that movie. I love Will Smith and Charlize Theron in it. But like I really love Will Smith in it. I recently rewatched it myself. It's an unusual movie. Is that your favorite Will Smith movie? No, my favorite Will Smith movie. Oh, wow, this is tough. I mean, it's got to be Independence Day, but very closely followed by Hitch. Yes, I would agree with you. Independence Day is the most important one for me personally. He's so great in it. Oh, my God, with Vivica Fox. I mean, it's just amazing. I just really think we're not talking enough about his Instagram anyway. But uh, I agree. I just, I I recommend Will Smith's Instagram. Okay, anyway, Fresh Prince, great stuff. You love TV. Do you watch any other current sitcoms? I think we count four weddings and a funeral, though you're not watching that. But no. that's like basically a sitcom. Okay. Um, I did recommend it to you. Yes, you did. Even I though I refuse to watch it, it's it's not my style. I believe it's your style. Is that right? Yeah, I love it. It's like not a good show that's really easy to watch and completely unrealistic about life and love. And I'm in. I like it. Okay. <laughs> um, any other sitcoms? I guess I I still watch The Office on Netflix, like everyone else in the world. Okay. Do you watch Friends? Well, No, I don't. Okay. I don't. And Amanda, thank you for bringing this up. Yesterday when we were doing our podcast on on Lover, and I was Googling 23 Cornelia Street. Mm -hmm. On the map, it now has a landmark on Google Map. I took a a screenshot for this. Of where Phoebe Buffay lived. And I am not into that. Like, I'm all about historical markers on the map. But Phoebe Buffay is not real. It's not like fucking George Washington. It's not like the Sons of the Revolution where they drank, you know, before they declared independence. I was so pissed when I saw this. I almost stopped our podcast. But then I just moved on. And I I've been quietly just seating. Like, was Phoebe's apartment like a fixed location on Friends? Because I remember Ross lived across the street. And obviously we yeah. know where the apartment building, where the two of them were, yes. you know the two main apartments were. I guess she did have the apartment because that's 
Rachel moved in at one point, and then there was like the apothecary table. You remember the apothecary yes, table? Of course, but she had a lie about where she got it. Yeah, from. yeah, that's really stayed with me. Well, Phoebe Buffay's apartment was on like just off of Bleecker. Okay. Um, and I just found this really irritating. They put this on the map. Just like, fuck this. Okay. No thanks. All right. Anyway, I brought up television because I wanted to talk about Younger in this season, which is almost over. There's like one or two episodes left. Two episodes and left. Yeah. Complete waste of a season. <laughs> like nothing, nothing has happened. Not particularly fun. No good set pieces. And the worst part about it is Charles is not hot anymore. He's like lame. Wow. I agree with this. I think I've sent you this conversation spawns partly from me just sending you irate texts like on a random Friday afternoon when I'm finally watching this week's younger and being like, what is happening? And you're like, OK, 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 I'll watch it. I would agree with you, except the last two episodes they finally figured out what they were doing this season. But it really does feel like they had plot for three episodes and had to turn it into 12. And it's not great. And even when they brought in the actual plot of Charles's ex-wife revealing Liza's age to everybody, it really felt shoehorned in. I mean, TV shows just should not be six and seven seasons. You can't keep up this central conceit for six seasons. And now they're they're having a seventh season, which I think is insanity, even though I'll watch it, probably. Will you keep watching if she goes back to Josh? I mean, she's going to. I We've known that since episode two of this season because it's not subtle. And also, what else do they have to do? It's like friends in a lot of ways, right? Where they just kind of have to keep doing the will they, won't they, will they, won't they, and go back and forth until they finally end the season and everyone who's supposed to end up together ends up together. I don't think she can end up with Charles, right? Yeah. Even though yeah. you and I think that that's the sensical and correct decision on a lot of levels. Also, I mean, if she, when she goes back to Josh, it, we're talking about sociopath behavior at this point. Because oh, absolutely. everything that she made the Charles character do in order to be with her, and then she's going back to the 24-year-old who helped protect her lie, you can't root for her anymore. I would also say that they'll have her go back to her because that's, like, more about what younger is. Like, feel like age doesn't matter. Like, feeling younger, blah, blah, blah. Nothing I care about. You also want to know what? That's not really true. I actually don't believe in that. But whatever. I guess maybe the point is Josh grew up and he's, like, ready to settle down. I I don't know. And he already had the kid. That One of the reasons they broke up is because he wanted to have a kid. And she was like, I already did that. But now he has a kid. Now he's the kid. Here's my real complaint is that all of the smart book stuff that Younger has done for the last, for the first, what, four or five seasons, it's pretty much gone. Even though they had, like, Meg Willits are cameoed at the beginning of this season. And they did the whole microdosing thing, which I guess was funny. But... They're not talking about books. I always thought that they did very funny send-ups of books and book culture. And it's not about reading anymore. I mean, shout out to me for being like, this TV show isn't about reading anymore, so I don't like it. But, you know, that's my truth. I agree with you. Like, that was a great, smart part of the show. Yeah, it's too bad. Ugh. Well, I hope the the last two are better. I agree. For me. Can I ask you how your Paris books are going, speaking of reading? They're going well. Um, I finished the Monaco one. Okay. It wasn't great, but I'm happy I read it. Now I'm reading about this this book. I can never remember the name of the books that I'm reading. Hold on. I'm going to pull it up for you. My Paris books are going well, though. And now I'm reading The Verdun Affair, which I just started. And it has, like, 
LA, Chicago, and Verdun in it, which is like three places that all are relevant to me. So I, I'm digging it. And it's going well. You know, I have to say, I feel relief being in like, these historical novels. Like, it's a real getaway, which I enjoy. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I enjoy them as well. Okay, keep us posted. What, do, what are you reading? I'm reading, I'd just like to say, I got home last Friday and I received a, a package that I didn't know I was getting from my friend Marissa, who listens to this podcast and she had just sent me a bunch of books she thought I would like, which was, oh. I was like overwhelmed. I basically teared up. It was the loveliest thing that I've gotten in some time. In that package was a new edition of All That Glitters, a book about Condé Nast and specifically oh. the rivalry between Anna Winter and Tina Brown, which I am Fantastic. reading now and having the time of my life. And there is also a new a mystery. God, I will. I'll find the name of it. I haven't read this mystery yet. And the new Jasmine Gullery novel, which is apparently royal adjacent as well. So, oh, fantastic! Report back. Yeah, I will report back and and just send books to your friends. There's nothing that you can do to make a friend happier than send them books. <laughs> it's really true. Okay. Well, happy reading, Amanda. Thank, Thank you. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back next week. <laughs> 